0: Welcome to What in the World. I'm Ryan Rosenthal. I'm Andre Gonowala. And this is the Burn Bags Weekly Rundown of the top national security and foreign policy stories.
1: Andre, there's a lot to cover this week. Uh, It is Black Friday. So where are we starting? Well, first of all, happy Thanksgiving to all of you who celebrated. Uh, Before uh, we get started and we get into these big issues, we just want to let you know, stay tuned until the end of the episode, because we have a a great interview with Dave Levy, uh, the federal vice president of Amazon Web Services, where he sort of takes us into some of the national security and defense policy centered work that AWS does and some of their partnerships with the federal government. But, uh, yeah, in ter- there's a lot to cover today. I think we could get started with uh, some of the transition stuff uh, by uh, President-elect Biden, uh, just named uh, some of the key figures of his national security and foreign policy team. First of all, his Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. Uh, a Blinken, some people have joked. Uh, going to be a Secretary of State designate. He was, I believe, our Deputy National Security Advisor during the Obama administration, and also John Kerry's deputy, while John Kerry was Secretary of State. So very much a return to like the establishment foreign policy gurus, Uh, speaking of John Kerry, John Kerry is going to be our climate change uh, envoys. And that is being raised to a cabinet level for the first time. So that's going to be very interesting. Uh, Certainly indicates the seriousness with which the Biden administration wants to give climate change by elevating a former Secretary of State to that position. Uh, Certainly, if you talk to many uh, former national security advisors, Uh, not just advisors, but national security officials, they will often tell you that uh, climate change is often the biggest security-centric challenge uh, in our near future. So that's certainly something to note. We also have Avril Haines being uh, the Director of National Intelligence designate, certainly the first woman who has been named to that position. Brian, do you think she's going to face any difficulty getting confirmed?
0: Well, you know, it's it's interesting because there's a handful of names that have been that have been announced as these um, nominees for these positions that require Senate confirmation, and of course, through that process, uh, in the likely chance that we have a Republican-held Senate, um, there will be confirmation hearings, and they probably won't be very enjoyable uh, for these nominees. But so, so Avril Haines, of course, you know, served in the Obama administration. Uh, she was deputy director of the CIA, deputy national security advisor and is now uh, tapped to hopefully be, in in her case, be DNI. Uh, and yeah, so I think, you know, she may, may face a lot of tough questions uh, from the Republican side, given her experience in the Obama administration, right? Uh, the use of drones is something that the Obama administration used, and that might come under scrutiny. Um, but that also may come under scrutiny under, under the liberal, you know, the liberal wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, so it might not be um, just the Republican side that has a lot of tough questions uh, for Avril Haines. Um, and kind of with that, you know, we're, we're still up in the air on who will be named CIA director, right? So right now, I mean, Mike Morrell was kind of thought of as the go to, but I was just reading today, and kind of before we uh, jumped on and started recording, Andre, uh, Tom Donilon, who served as uh, President Obama's uh, national security advisor. He was, you know, also deputy national security advisor from nine to 10 national security advisor from 10 to 13. Um, and so he may come under scrutiny if he were, um, you know, nominated for the position one because of, you know, the use of drones, he kind of, uh, backed that policy, but he's also not a career CIA official doesn't really have a lot of, you know, um, the, the intelligence background that many of these nominees do. And so he might come under scrutiny, uh, from, you know, both within the agency and also outside. Uh, so it'll be very interesting to see what, what happens there.
1: I mean, the important thing to note is that like some of these picks, some of the motivations behind these picks is to restore, you know, the idea not of legitimacy, but, you know, give these agencies some sense of authorities, return it to, you know, people who know these agencies well. So at Michael Morell, for example, He would be, in, I guess, the Biden transition team's view, the natural pick as someone who's had a 30-plus year career in the CIA. He knows the CIA in and out. Uh, Plenty of people within the CIA respect him greatly. So, like, you know, he'll be able to jump in there and sort of transition into it seamlessly, not too many, like, procedural issues. Where you know someone like Tom Donilon is coming in as a relative outsider to the CIA culture. I Even mean, Avril Haines wasn't in the CIA for like too long, actually, right? Like she herself is also like I guess more of an "quote unquote" outsider than Michael Morell would be. Michael Morell is, I mean, he's the definition of an insider. And yet, Ryan, as he mentioned, uh, certainly a little bit of controversy between uh, for both Morell and uh, Donilon. Uh, I believe Senator Ron Wyden, the Democratic senator, uh, criticized uh, Morell's perspective nomination as being, you know, sort of a turnoff, just because of some controversies circulating around uh, the use of torture. So I think, I mean, these nominations are going to be somewhat difficult, as always, but uh, we'll see what happens. Right, absolutely.
0: And then as as far as, you know, the people who won't have to face um, these these hearings, you know, Jake Sullivan, of course, uh, being named national security advisor. Very young, yeah. He's very young. You know, he's you know, I believe, you know, early forties. Uh, served as director of policy planning. Uh, he was national security advisor to Joe Biden when he was vice president, and so he is now going to be national security advisor to President Biden when he assumes office. Um, you know, and and Jake Sullivan was very, very involved in the Iran nuclear negotiations. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty on whether or not the United States will kind of enter back into the JCPOA. We'll kind of see what happens with uh, a nuclear deal. Uh, but I think that will probably be at the forefront. I mean, of, of all of these issues, I'd say Iran is a, a big one, but also the, the issue of China. Right. I mean, yeah. the current administration has taken a very hard line. Uh, hasn't you know worked out very well for you know a variety of re- reasons, both you know domestically and when we're looking at our international relations. Uh, but I-, I think it's safe to say that the 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 Biden administration will also take a hardline approach to China, but kind of look more at securing domestic infrastructure, uh, our you know uh, our economy, right? Because such a big part of of China's soft power has been through its economy. Uh, And so I I know that, you know, what we've been seeing coming out of the the Biden transition is that the focus will be on kind of securing America at home as well as abroad.
1: And I think something to note, there was some controversy, at least I saw it on social media, among the conservative circles. And uh, Jake Sullivan giving a speech maybe a few years ago saying, like, essentially what he said, if you read the full article, was that. He wants China to basically follow the rules based international order, which they are not doing at the moment, right? Like he wants them, like he wouldn't necessarily be opposed to them, you know, growing an influence according to that speech, but he wants them to be in a rules based international order. However, that speech was delivered in either 2016 or 2017. So, you know, a lot has changed in the four years since that speech was Mm -hmm. given. China has certainly become more. Assertive and aggressive in you know many sort of uh, domains, and so on. Also, uh, I want to point out something that might also help us pivot into our next topic. Uh, Jake Sullivan uh, was taught, I think, tweeted out about the ongoing crisis in Ethiopia, and uh, certainly the Biden transition team and President-elect Biden have made some statements on what's happening in Ethiopia. Uh, Also of note, uh, Linda Thomas Greenfield. She's spent many years in African capitals, helped shape U.S. policy on sub-Saharan Africa. Is going to be our U.N. ambassador. So I think there's going to be an emphasis, you know, on what the U.S., uh, I guess, point of view and stature is on Africa, oftentimes in foreign policy and national security. I regret to say it, but a forgotten region, a forgotten continent for, you know, much of the frontline stuff. Hopefully, we'll see, you know, an emphasis on Africa. In the next few years. But on that point, uh, two things I want to note. Uh, in Somalia, I think just yesterday or two days ago, it was reported that a CIA official was killed in action in Somalia. Uh, Ryan, do you have any more information about that? Has any more information been released? Yeah, so they've
0: been pretty tight lipped on what actually kind of went down that led to the death of the CIA officer. But let me kind of just paint the picture for our listeners so they have an understanding on how this kind of came to be. Right. So when people think of the CIA, right, it's, of course, the foreign intelligence arm of the U.S. governments. Uh, but in addition to collecting foreign intelligence, they also have a paramilitary um, division called the Special Activities Center, previously known as the Special Activities Division. Um, and so basically they conduct paramilitary operations around the world. They basically take the best of our special uh, operations forces within the U.S. military and they assist the CIA in conducting operations. Um, and so they were in Somalia to assist the local um, population there in countering uh, terrorism, right They're doing counterterrorism operations, training uh, the military in, in Somalia. And Somalia has been a crucial country for counter-terror. And so this CIA officer was killed in combat, but again, you know, not a lot of details. About the circumstances that led to to the death of this officer,
1: and it's also important to note, as we actually mentioned last week, that there have been uh, there has been thinking and some commentary on the potential of a drawdown from Somalia, which could potentially complicate the counter the progress of counterterrorism uh, efforts there. Uh, as we had mentioned last week as well, uh, Ethiopian troops who have been in Somalia as a peacekeeping effort might also be pulled out too. Uh, we don't know, you know, if this uh, if this sad loss of our CIA officer may change, you know, our attitudes on that. But it's certainly something to keep in mind and watch. And uh, you know, sort of keeping on the topic of Ethiopia as well. I mean, the fighting still continues on, sadly, and uh, very unfortunately, around six hundred civilians, I believe, were killed in an attack just this past week—a a true tragedy. And uh, Ryan, is there anything else going on there? You know, like what is the war looking like? Like aside from this, just this terrible massacre, like uh, is it going to intensify? What What are we seeing?
0: You know, my, my fear is that it, it will intensify, right? So the the Ethiopian Prime Minister said that you know at, at the time we're recording this, and just so our listeners know, right, things may have changed significantly by the time this episode is released um, on Friday. But uh, Ethiopia was entering the quote unquote final phase of its operation. in in Tigray. And so, um, you know, it's hard for us to speak about what's going to happen, but Mm. um, certainly I think that you will see more civilian deaths. You will see more civilians fleeing uh, to neighboring Sudan, which, as we mentioned uh, in the previous episode, has a whole other set of issues uh, that it's dealing with. Uh, And so the humanitarian crisis will likely worsen. um, And I Again, it's it's very likely that the Ethiopian government will not just stand by and let Tigray uh, try to assert its own autonomy. Uh, and so this, this um, conflict and crisis will devolve further.
1: That certainly is the fear, but it almost seems inevitable at this point as, you know, I guess any efforts at peace have essentially fallen short and the two sides are just going at it right now. Uh, yeah, I think now moving on to another part of the world, the Middle East, we're seeing considerable uh, progress and a lot of big events happening actually surrounding Israel and uh, its relationship with some of the Gulf states. So there were some reports recently that Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, whence our secretary of state Mike Pompeo flew to Saudi Arabia to meet with MBS, the crown prince of Saudi uh, Netanyahu apparently has secretly accompanied him and has met with MBS and Netanyahu uh, is supposed to visit or he may have already visited the UAE and Bahrain so certainly I think the normalization of relationships between Israel and these Gulf states is you know on the horizon it could happen very soon and uh, certainly we're seeing Israel and the Gulf states you know normalize their relations as sort of this, not this conflict, but these spheres of influence, right? The spheres of influence were divided between, you know, the Iranians and the Saudis, well, essentially a Saudi-led sphere of influence with the Gulf states. And Israel, you know, they've already had like a lot of security cooperation, of course, discreetly with some of these Gulf states, but I think this is making it more public, this is making it more official. And uh, I mean, what, what do you think this means?
0: Well, let's kind of think about right the timing of this, right? We're, we're very close to the end of the Trump administration, and so uh, it. I think we'd be hard pressed to find the the Saudis, you know, officially announce a normalization uh, under right the current circumstances, just because they're going to change, right? We do not yet know what uh, U.S. policy towards Israel will be yet. Of course, we have the experience of the Biden uh, years under the Obama administration. Uh, but all of these things may change, right, the circumstances. It, of course, is very significant that this meeting happened. Um, but again, right, if we look broader at the geopolitical landscape, um, you know, Israel and Saudi Arabia have a common enemy, right? It's Iran. There's, there's no question about that. And so it, it certainly makes sense to normalize relations. Uh, but there are domestic, uh, domestic, you know, consequences within Saudi Arabia for such an action, uh, as well as in Israel, right? So uh, I think it's certainly possible given the other normalizations. Uh, but I don't. I, I really think it'd be it'd be difficult for the Saudis to make such a move without knowing how the Biden administration will react and seeing, you know, what the Biden administration is willing to kind of offer Saudi Arabia. Um, for such a move because it, it's a very significant move
1: and on this topic we're going to dig deeper into this a week from monday we're going to be having a conversation with bruce rydell the senior fellow from brookings who actually was one of the participants one of the negotiators at the 2000 camp david summit between then israeli prime minister ehud barak and a palestinian leader yasser arafat during the clinton administration uh very well versed with these issues. So we're going to have a good deep dive into, you know, what these normalizations mean and what the future, you know, of Israel's relationships with these countries looks like, especially, you know, with the Iran versus Saudi question in the air and this transition period, like if things will change or if things won't change.
0: Yeah, I mean, everything is up in the air as we kind of really uh, enter the the Biden administration. So um, I think it's everyone should be, you know, paying very close attention to see who uh, Biden announces for these, you know, potential positions, um, because they send signals, right, to our, our allies and our adversaries uh, overseas. Um, and so mm-hmm. this, this is certainly something in particular that uh, could very much change
1: the balance of power in the Middle East. For sure, for sure, definitely. And uh, there's been some situations in Thailand as well, right? What's been going on in Thailand? So Thailand's been, you know, something that has not been the news, um, but
0: I mean, a lot has gone on since the summer, right? There's been ongoing protests since July and and recently, right? I think a few days ago, protesters were charged, a, a group of seven leaders of this protest movement were charged um, under the law that prohibits insulting the monarchy, right? So for those who don't know, uh, Thailand has a monarchy, uh, it's king, Um is is not very popular. Certainly not as popular as his father, uh, who is more or less beloved by the people of Thailand. And so, basically, this protest movement is is seeking to, you know, redistribute some of the wealth the monarchy holds, um, seeking to rewrite the constitution, decrease the power of the monarchy. And this is, you know, a a young middle class urbanite movement um, within Thailand. And so, it's very interesting to see. Right, we talked about. I think Peru, maybe last week, that was a similar, you know, young movement of young of, of urbanites, um, certainly for different reasons. Uh, but again, right, this we have see this trend of of young people, urban people, um, attempting to assert their political will. And so I think um, you know we should all pay very close attention. And fortunately, we'll have um, a professor coming on to discuss
1: Thailand, kind of help. Dr. To- Alan Hicken from right. the University of Michigan. Yep.
0: Um, So, you know, I'm looking forward to that conversation to kind of break down what's going on there and what the future may hold.
1: Actually, returning, before I forget, returning back to the United States, uh, we've talked for the last two episodes about, you know, the the lack of uh, transition cooperation. Finally, the GSA has approved, uh, essentially, the collaboration and the coordination between the Trump administration and the Biden transition team. So now we're actually seeing... uh, you know, the coordination happened, right? We're seeing all the various agencies essentially work with, you know, the people who are coming in with the Biden administration, uh, while, of course, President Trump's legal challenges still continue. So just wanted to point that out.
0: Yes, it's, um, you know, we were, we were talking about, the, you know, last week, whether or not this was going to happen, but at least, you know, as as the weeks passed, things seem to be getting a bit smoother. Um, so President-elect Biden will be getting his daily brief, um, and then the transition will, you know, will be receiving the funds necessary and the the infrastructure necessary to continue the transition. So uh, it is looking like we will have a not. I, I won't call it a smooth transition, but certainly a smoother transition uh, than it looked hmm. just a week ago.
1: Still, regardless, I mean, we have lost some time, and like, I mean, certainly we'll have to see what these delays may portend for our foreign policy or national security, whether, you know, it's in the immediate aftermath of president like Biden's inauguration or, you know, in years to come. And uh, we shall see about that. Well, one brief question before we end and we transition into the interview. Uh, there has been some talk recently of pardons. And uh, Edward Snowden of, uh, you know, who leaked maybe 1.5 million documents and files from the NSA in 2013. And it's now, speaking of Russia, residing in Russia. He has apparently applied for dual citizenship there, U.S.-Russian citizenship. Uh, there's been some co- murmurs, I think, about a potential pardon for Edward Snowden. Uh, real quick, Ryan, do you think it's going to get a pardon? What's your uh, estimate? What's What's your guess?
0: There will be... A lot of blowback within the U.S. government, particularly within the intelligence community, if Edward Snowden were to be given a pardon. Now, of course, mm. you know the merits of the pardon. Uh, there, there are many, uh, many arguments for such a pardon, right? The, the, you know, how it, the transparency argument. Um, but again, you know, given the the moderation of the people that have come into these positions, right? From Tony Blinken to Jake Sullivan, right? These people are, you know, a bit more moderate in their views. Um, but
1: do you think Trump's, Trump's going to do it? Do you think oh, Trump would do a part in President Trump? Absolutely not. No. Really? No, not going to happen. Hmm.
0: No, I, I'd say it would be much more likely, uh, in my mind, under under a Biden administration, just because of, of the progressive wing of the party, hmm. right, have, have applauded, you know, it's the same argument about about wikileaks about all that stuff. Uh, wikileaks, um, in that vein, I just, I mean, again, I, I understand um, the the why people have been questioning whether or not it's going to happen, um, but again, I, I don't see the benefit. Right. There's no transactional benefit for Donald Trump.
1: I, I say it's it's more of like you know a surprise move, like a quote-unquote a popular move, I guess. I mean, I don't know if it's popular, but like it's something right. I feel like it's something Trump would do more so than Biden. I feel like, I mean, considering that Snowden revelations happened in the Obama administration and certainly some of the people we're seeing uh, who are coming back into government were in government during the Snowden situation. And, you know, it's important to note when you're talking about Snowden, like, uh, you know, whether or not some of the information of the activities he provided was, as in the activities, whether or not some of those activities were illegal, uh, you know, is irrelevant when you consider that, like, he leaked a lot of information about activities that were legal that harmed our national security in the eyes of the IC. For example, the PRISM program. Uh, PRISM was approved by Congress, and certainly leaking information about that. Might have, you know, harmed our operations in terms of counterterrorism. It might have, in fact, like his essentially taking of data to Russia, like his, you know, his taking of information to Russia, essentially might have compromised that information. It might have given the Russians some of that information too. So, I, I highly doubt that a pardon would happen under a Biden administration. I think it's. A, I'm. I'll put money on it, hundred <laughs> percent. No, for a Biden administration, but under the Trump administration, you never know. You never know.
0: That's true. You never know. But um, I will. I will. You know, equally and as forcefully say that under the Trump administration, <laughs> uh, we will not see a pardon. There's, there's really, again, right. If you look at how how the president, you know, acts um, vis-a-vis other other countries, and even with domestically, right. Um, there's got to be a benefit to himself or the United States, uh, and for this, it's it's marginal at best, mm. uh, and it would really cause a you know a lot of groans within the Republican Party if this were to happen. And so, yeah. um, I don't know. I guess again, like everything, we're gonna have to wait and see. You know, Donald Trump has you know thrown a lot of surprises uh, at at us, and so again, we don't know. But I will say, uh, my vote is no.
1: If you're interested in learning more about the Snowden uh, sort of situation, our interview with Admiral Mike Rogers, a former NSA director, who essentially had to deal with the blowback of the Snowden issue. He came into office in 2014. Snowden's uh, The Snowden leaks happened in 2013. Uh, he provides his uh, opinion on Snowden. It's a very interesting opinion. So be sure to check out that. And uh, this Monday, actually, we will be re- releasing an episode on the Uyghur situation in China. Uh, certainly a very tragic situation, essentially a cultural genocide that has been that is happening in the People's Republic of China. Uh, a whole book was read to prepare for this interview, and I think it's a very educational interview. It's a very good interview with Dr. Sean Roberts of the George Washington University. So please check that out. And uh, right now, we want to share a little interview we did with Dave Levy. Uh, again, federal vice president of Amazon Web Services. He also did government and policy for Apple before working in Amazon Web Services. Uh, It'll be very interesting, looks a lot at cooperation between Amazon Web Services and the defense sector, the national security sector, and so on. So yeah, here you go. Uh, Please take a listen. Let us know your thoughts. Yeah, we hope you had a very happy Thanksgiving. Uh, stay safe if you're going to engage in all the shopping bonanzas on Black Friday. Maybe call it Cyber Friday, or, well, Cyber Monday exists. But yeah, stay safe and be well, everyone. Today, we're so glad to have Dave Levy from Amazon Web Services here with us. Uh, Dave, before we dig into today's topics, uh, let's start with an overview of AWS. Now, for many of our listeners, when they think of Amazon, online shopping likely comes to mind. But a significant component of Amazon's business is its Amazon Web Services, known as AWS. So, Dave, what exactly does AWS do,
2: and what types of services does it provide to the U.S. government? Sure. Well, first, it's great to be here with both of you. This is really exciting. Uh, But on, you know, and you're right. um, People think of Amazon and Amazon.com, our our, uh, platform, but AWS offers a broad set of cloud-based products, including compute, storage, databases, analytics, networking, mobile services, developer tools, management tools, security, and enterprise applications. These services um, help organizations move faster. They lower IT costs. And scale. And so, we're AWS is a trusted by some of the largest enterprises and the hottest startups in the world to power a wide variety of workloads, including web and mobile apps, game development, data processing and warehousing, storage, archive, and many other. So, millions of enterprises are currently leveraging AWS Cloud products and solutions to build specialized applications with increased flexibility, scalability, and reliability. And when AWS Worldwide Public Sector launched in 2010, we focused almost exclusively on the US federal government. And though few people at the time knew even even what cloud was, we notched some important first that helped pave the way for the acceptance of cloud that exists today. People really began to take notice of AWS when the CIA chose us to build and operate commercial AWS cloud services for the intelligence community, and that win was a really a first of its kind contract and proof of what we had been saying all along that you can have both security and rapid innovation with commercial cloud. And today, AWS Public Sector is a global organization. We support over 6,500 government agencies. Eleven thousand academic institutions, over twenty-nine thousand nonprofit organizations around the world, and our public sector, worldwide public sector customers uh, are in more than one hundred and eighty countries and territories. Well, it certainly is significant that CIA contracted with AWS
0: uh, for its services, and as you mentioned, there are many other aspects of the public sector that contract with AWS. Um, And so, I mean, this podcast is a national security podcast. And so why do you think, first, the defense sector is moving to the cloud, looking to the cloud for its services? And when we talk about the cloud, what does the private
2: sector offer that government may not be able to accomplish on its own? Sure. Well, you know, national security depends on our nation's ability to stay a step, sometimes even two or three steps ahead of our adversaries. And a big component of that is modernizing aging infrastructure and adopting the latest security technologies, which are available in the cloud. The cloud enables organizations to achieve their missions faster, speed up innovation and save costs by scaling up quickly without the lengthy and costly process of acquiring hardware. By eliminating the undifferentiated heavy lifting of the underlying IT infrastructure, the defense intelligence and national security communities can focus on what's most important, their mission. So our our philosophy, and the one that we're unwavering on, is we feel strongly that the defense intelligence and national security communities deserve access to the best technology in the world. We owe it to our service members and their families to ensure that they have access to the best technology available today. And with AWS, they do. So
1: certainly, when we talk about AWS and government contracting Certainly, cybersecurity is very central to the protection of this data. So how does AWS ensure security for its government customers, especially for those in national security and defense communities, and whose missions often require an exceptionally high bar
2: for security? At AWS, security is and will always be our top priority. Everything we build is built with security by design. And AWS has been architected to be the most flexible and secure cloud computing environment available today. And we continue to innovate to deliver the most up-to-date approaches to cybersecurity. While the government does have a high security bar, our core infrastructure is built to meet it. AWS offers regions to serve government workloads across the full range of US government data classifications. We also support a range of security requirements, including specific laws, regulations, and frameworks. So for example, based on listening to the unique needs of our government customers, we build a highly secure and compliant infrastructure so they can innovate ahead of demand. AWS was the first cloud provider to build a region specifically designed to meet U.S. government security and compliance needs when we launched GovCloud in 2011. In 2018, we introduced GovCloud East. Uh, This is an isolated region subject to FedRAMP high and moderate baselines operated by U.S. citizens on U.S. soil. It's accessible only to vetted U.S. entities and root account holders who must confirm that they are U.S. persons, uh, like citizens or permanent residents in order to gain access. AWS GovCloud gives vetted government customers and regulated industry customers and their partners the flexibility to architect secure cloud solutions that comply with the FedRAMP High Baseline, the DOJ's Criminal Justice Information System, CJIS, Security Policy, U.S. International Traffic in Arms Regulation, Export Administration Regulations, Department of Defense, Cloud Computing Security Requirements, for impact levels 2, 4, and 5, FIPS 140-2, IRS 1075, and other compliance regimes. So,
0: Dave, uh, we're, we're currently in this coronavirus pandemic, and AWS, of course, is a significant provider of both pro- public and private cloud-based technologies. So how are your government customers continuing to support their missions during the ongoing pandemic through AWS?
2: Yeah. COVID has stressed a lot of federal organizations as they've had to quickly deliver emergency relief services while keeping the lights on. A lot of these agencies are also working with reduced resources, with staff increasingly remote, out sick, and balancing work with family responsibilities. We found that government agencies have had to do more with less, and this is where the scale and automation that technology enables can help. We've helped agencies scale up and scale down quickly through the pandemic, and there is a lesson to be learned that there is no way to predict which agency systems will need to be scaled quickly. Uh, As an example, the Small Business Administration needed to scale quickly to administer loans, providing financial relief through the Paycheck Protection Program. The agency quickly turned to AWS to develop a key cloud-based element of the program, allowing for a rapid scale-up of operations. In another example, we've also been working with the U.S. Census Bureau to accept responses to the decennial census online. While this modernization has been in the works for years, it became essential capacity during the pandemic.
1: So now when we're looking at the future of AWS and cloud technologies, what does that future look like? I mean, what are some use cases that have particular relevance to national security and defense work?
2: In the national security and defense space, our customers have vast amounts of data that can be leveraged to enhance their missions. The national security community's ability to make sense of vast amounts of data as quickly as possible will be critical to ensuring our country's continued safety and security. We need to ensure we are putting the latest AI solutions, big data analytics, quantum capabilities, and other emerging technologies into the hands of our national security professionals and our war fighters, the solution should be the most cutting edge solutions available. The same ones available to the private sector. We should not be saddling those charged with protecting our country with antiquated technology, yesterday's algorithms or outdated software by eliminating the undifferentiated heavy lifting of the underlying IT infrastructure the defense and national security communities can really focus on their missions.
0: Yeah, you can't argue with that. And so, Dave, let's round out this conversation by talking about you. You've had a long career in IT. Uh, so, yes. so first, how did you find your way into the space? And what in particular do you enjoy about working with and providing services for the private sector?
2: Sure. You know, I started out uh, writing code for my father, who is a physicist. Um, so we I don't have to name the year, but uh, (laughs) I'll tell you what the programming, some of the programming languages are, uh, Fortran and Pascal and COBOL. I wasn't a very good, uh, very good at the keyboard, but that early exposure to technology just captivated me. And um, it's been an integral part of my life ever since. And um, I've seen, um, I've seen our our industry grow and proliferate and really change the face of you know our country, our world. And it's inspired me. Um, So even though I didn't stay behind the keyboard, I stayed in this industry. And then I had the opportunity many years ago to get involved with public sector customers and and I just really got excited about their mission. Um, Whether it's you know delivering services to citizens, or uh, protecting our, our nation, or preserving our assets or our natural resources, uh, the opportunity to provide innovation, uh, to provide technology to public sector customers, whether they're education or nonprofit, it's just really exciting. Um, you know, I almost can't wait to come to work every day and help uh, a customer discover something new or a new way to do something. It's just really exciting and compelling.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Well, Dave, with that, we want to thank you for speaking with us today about all that uh, AWS has to offer uh, the public sector, right? I mean, it's certainly uh, important work uh, providing services uh, for those men and women who serve our country. So thanks so much for taking the time today, Dave. Sure. It's
2: really great to be here with you guys.